you have a Bible with you or a Bible on your phone or something, please turn to Matthew chapter 4. This is towards the beginning of the New Testament. This is the first of what we call the four gospel accounts, stories about what Jesus was doing during his time on earth. Matthew chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are what we call chapters, the little numbers are what we call verses. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18, down to the end of the chapter. Verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for speaking to us uh, in this word. We pray that you would uh, open up its meaning to us so that we can apply it, so that we can live rightly in light of it, soften our hearts so that we might respond rightly, mostly so that we might see who Jesus is and desire to live for him. We pray in his name. Amen. As humans, we're fascinated by leaders who assemble a talented team for the sake of a great mission. It's the theme of many of our movies, movies like Saving Private Ryan, the entire X-Men franchise. Uh, It fills some of our favorite, most important stories in history. Think of George Washington uh, purposefully appointing Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson to be in his cabinet, even though they thought very differently. Uh, Most of all, most importantly of all, most important historical event of all existence, Stephen F. Austin and his old 300 families coming on a great mission to found Texas. We love this kind of thing. We see something like it in today's passage about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's announcing the beginning, the arrival of God's great and majestic kingdom rule. But there's a lot here. And there's a lot more to come in the Gospel of Matthew that actually challenges our assumptions about success, about leadership. Jesus is on a mission 
that is infinitely greater than anybody before or since, even Stephen F. Austin. But the way that Jesus carries out this mission and the followers that he assembles, they're all something that the world really never could have imagined. But before we get to the sublime teachings of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthews 5 to 7, maybe one of the most famous speeches of all time, before we get to that, and then after that, before we get to lots of details about Jesus' miracles in chapters 8 and 9, before we get to all that stuff, Matthew wants to give us a high-level view, a big-picture understanding about Jesus' great mission. What did he come to do? And what's the surprising way that he's going to carry it out? I have three Ps for you today. I'm channeling my Baptist roots through alliteration. We have the promise of the kingdom, the proclamation of the kingdom, and the people of the kingdom. First, with the promise of the kingdom, look at verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12. You hear there that John the Baptist, that his ministry has abruptly ended because he's been arrested. We're going to hear more about it later on in Matthew, uh, but the short version of it is that he ran afoul of the local government ruler by calling him out on his pride and his selfishness. And so now that John the Baptist has been thrown in prison, Jesus takes up the mantle of his ministry. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus preached the exact same message that we heard John the Baptist preaching a couple weeks ago in chapter 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'll explain in a little bit more about what this means, but for now the point is that Jesus is carrying on with what John said and with what John did. But you also hear there, in verse 12, that having heard that John was arrested, Jesus withdraws into Galilee. Not just goes to Galilee, but that he withdraws. It's the area where he grew up. This is in northern Palestine. Uh, but even so, this should come as something of a shock to us. Uh, because we've just heard about Jesus' baptism. We've just heard about this amazing victory over Satan in the wilderness and his temptations. And so we should be surprised because Galilee was a place that was on the fringes of Israel's society. It was on the fringes socially, politically, spiritually, even ethnically. The real locus of power and prestige in Jewish society was the city of Jerusalem and the region immediately around it, the region of Judea. But here, Jesus purposefully leaves that region where he was getting baptized and being tempted. He purposefully leaves that region to go back up north into Galilee, where he's going to spend the vast majority of his ministry. Galilee was an area that had originally been occupied by the Israelites when Joshua led them into the Promised Land. But about 700 years before Jesus, the Assyrian Empire had come in and devastated this entire area. They removed most of the Jewish people who were there, and they forcibly resettled lots of other groups of people from other areas in their empire there in Galilee. And so over the centuries, it had developed this reputation among Jewish people for being an area that was backwards, uh, that was non-Jewish, that was impure, questionable, suspicious. And so by Jesus' time, it's still populated mostly by non-Jewish groups, such as Syrians, Greeks, and Romans. And the Jewish people who were there were known uh, for being screwballs and bumpkins and wackos. 
And so it's really odd that God's messianic king over Israel would make Galilee, instead of Jerusalem, his headquarters. The promise of the Old Testament, that these promises that talk about where the Messiah was going to come from, they all refer to Judea. Galilee is largely unmentioned in the Old Testament when it's talking about God's great king to come. And so Jesus does leave his podunk village home of Nazareth that we heard about a few weeks ago. He does leave Nazareth for a larger and more significant town called Capernaum. But even so, even for Galilee, Capernaum is still kind of a joke. There are much larger, much more important cities right nearby Capernaum. Jesus does not pick any of those for his base. But Matthew wants us to see that this was actually God's plan all along. We saw last week in Jesus' temptations in the wilderness that he explicitly rejected the worldly paths of success and spectacle. His decision to minister in backwards Galilee is another clue that God's king is not whom the world wants or expects him to be, and that this is actually by design. Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 9, which Natalie read for us earlier, uh, the broader context of it. Uh, this is that passage that we hear so often near Christmas time. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, that passage. This is the passage that Matthew is quoting from. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, wrote that originally in the original context of Assyria invading northern Israel, Assyria devastating the entire region, including Galilee. And so Isaiah promises that even though the area is going to be totally humiliated and wiped out, that one day God would restore and rescue them. In verse 15, you hear Matthew quoting Isaiah, describing the area as Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. It's a way of saying that this is an area characterized largely by paganism, by alternate spiritualities, and it's, of course, much of the reason why the Jewish people looked down on the area so much. The area was crushed so badly by the Assyrians that Isaiah says that the people there are like people who are sitting in darkness. The sheer terror of getting stuck in the dark is something that's perhaps a bit hard for us to understand with all of our devices, all of our LEDs. Uh, but I wonder if any of you have ever been somewhere that was so dark, so dangerous, that it's not even safe to move anymore, maybe while you're driving. Some of us have experienced something like that for a brief time, but Isaiah says that life is so bad in Galilee that it's like they are permanently stuck in the dark. But even worse than living in darkness, Isaiah says that it's like living in the shadow of death. Isaiah and Matthew's point is that the world, the realm of the nations, that all people are living in the darkness of the shadow of death. We cannot get ourselves out of it. We cannot do anything about it. We're totally trapped everywhere you go in the world. We've seen in our own world the last couple years how much we are still living in the shadow of death. But I'm not just talking about all the people who have died from COVID the last couple years, as tragic as that is. Diseases and epidemics have always been part of human history, many of them far more lethal than COVID. I'm also talking about something that is unique to this epidemic. 
the way that our world has reacted to it. This all-consuming panic and fear, this desperate assumption, this desperate hope that we can control it somehow, that we can just turn off society, that we can just turn off the economy. All these unprecedented lockdowns never tried before in human history, all the businesses destroyed, children deprived of school and friendship and therapy, skyrocketing anxiety, depression, addiction, overdoses, millions of people who are going to starve to death in the developing world, people who are going to die of preventable diseases because they did not have the luxury of working and ordering from home. In our fear of suffering and death, we have done profound damage to the entire world. We have inflicted misery, especially on children and the poor. We too, even with all of our technology, all of our affluence, we too are living in the shadow of death. We cannot rescue ourselves from it. All of us are going to die someday. Somehow, many of us will die in ways far more painful than death from COVID, but we're terrified of it. This has revealed that to us. But it's the world that Jesus came into. In its backward and wayward devastation, Galilee is a picture. It embodies the shadow of death that lies over the whole entire world, over all of human history. We are still suffocating, even today, under the shadow of death. But Isaiah tells us that God promised that he would send his king to shine a great light. With the coming of God's king, Jesus, the New Testament shockingly, offensively claims that the light of life now has dawned upon the darkness of this world. That's the promise of the kingdom. That's what Jesus' ministry is all about. And so now in verse 17, we move on from the promise of the kingdom to the proclamation of the kingdom. It says, from that time, this is a decisive turn now, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You hear something similar in verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The word gospel simply means good news. It was a term that was used of heralds who would announce things like victory in battle for our side. In the book of Isaiah, this word gospel, this word good news, heralding, it's used to describe this wonderfully good news that God was going to be returning to live with his people after their many years of misery in exile. And so Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is kind of an old-fashioned way to say this. Here comes the kingdom of heaven. Here it comes. It's here. It's on its way. Uh, this image of God's kingdom is one of the most important images for understanding the Bible, for understanding the New Testament. It's very rich. It has many sides to it. It not only describes the bare fact that God is king, that God is in charge, that God is ruling over the world, it's also an idea that includes uh, the people over whom he's ruling. Uh, the, this idea of a realm, it's not just the bare ruling, it's also the realm. Um, it also describes the place where these people are located. And so the kingdom in the Bible, the kingdom is not just this bare, uh, dry theological concept. It's not just even a way of saying that a, some individual people are saved, some individual people are going to heaven. Uh, it's also a way of describing a community, a community of people who are living under God's rule 
in a particular way, in a particular place, with a particular calling. All those ideas are wrapped up into this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, or sometimes you hear it as the kingdom of God. It's what the nation of Israel was supposed to be living out, what they were supposed to be foreshadowing from Abraham through Moses onward. Uh, It's what, because of Israel's abysmal failure to do all this, it's what the Old Testament prophets were all looking forward to. The Old Testament prophets describe God's kingdom with all kinds of different images and terms. Sometimes they call it the new covenant. Sometimes they call it the second exodus or the new exodus. Sometimes they call it the new creation. And Jesus shows up now, this uh, strange craftsman from Nazareth. Jesus shows up and says that the kingdom is coming. We'll see as the gospel unfolds that the kingdom is simultaneously here, but also not yet here. This is one of the most important things for understanding the Bible. For the most part, the Old Testament, when you read it, pretty much sounds like that when the kingdom comes... When the new creation comes, when the new covenant comes, pretty much sounds like it's going to come all at once. God's going to show up. He's going to fix everything. He's going to wipe out all the bad guys. And all of us are going to be living in this brand new resurrected world. That's what everybody's expecting in Jesus' day. There's lots of guys running around saying that they were the ones bringing this in. There's lots of guys running around saying they were the Messiah. But one thing that we're going to have to see as we go through the Gospel of Matthew is that with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom has only begun to arrive. It will not fully arrive until he comes back a second time. This period in between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, the time that we are now living in, this is a time for the whole world to hear about Jesus. It's a time marked by God's patience. It's a time marked by God giving people lots of extra chances to escape the judgment that they deserve. And so that's why Jesus says that in light of the arrival of God's kingdom, people should repent, meaning they should turn around, they should convert, they should get on track with God, they should leave behind the world's way in order to embrace God's way. Because God's kingdom is a righteous kingdom, the citizens of his kingdom should live in accordance with that righteousness. There's a certain way for us to live. The Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 to 7 is going to elaborate in great detail what this life of repentance should look like. But the flip side of repentance is faith, trust, belief. Uh, The Gospel of Mark, when it's describing uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, says that Jesus preached this, repent and believe the gospel. If repentance has to do with righteousness, with God's standard of what's right and good and true, if repentance has to do with the righteousness of God's kingdom, uh, then belief, thinking about it from another angle, belief has to do with the power of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is not only righteous, it's also powerful. It's something that we can only accept, something we can only embrace or receive. And so we have to receive and accept the good news of what God has already done. The miracles of Jesus, chapters 8 and 9, particularly illustrate the power of God's kingdom. Sermon on the Mount illustrates the righteousness of God's kingdom. The miracles, following on the heels of it, are going to illustrate the power of God's kingdom. 
the way that citizens of God's kingdom can only passively and helplessly accept God's power. God does not heal, Jesus does not go around healing people and say, well, you've got to kind of heal yourself halfway first, and then I'll help you. He says, do you want me to heal you? Yes. Boom. He heals them. The power of God's kingdom. You just can accept it. That's all you can do. Jesus does not preach that we must build the kingdom, that we must bring the kingdom into being, that we must live in a certain way and so cause God's kingdom to show up. Jesus just starts walking around Galilee saying that the kingdom is coming. It's already here. All that's left for us to do is to accept it, to enter it, to receive it. Jesus never tells us to build the kingdom. The proclamation of the good news that in, in Jesus, God's kingdom rule over death and darkness has arrived, this is the central feature of Jesus' mission. This is the main thing that Jesus is about. Life and light have come in me, Jesus says. And so because it's the main thing about Jesus' mission, it's also the main thing about the mission of his church today. It's the promise of the kingdom, light in the midst of darkness, the proclamation of the kingdom, repent, because the light is here, and now finally, the people of the kingdom. Look at verses 18 to 25. Jesus has already begun on his own to proclaim the arrival of God's mighty kingdom rule. He's God's Messiah. He is quite capable of ruling over God's world. And so it's a bit striking in verse 18 that you begin to hear that he starts assembling a group of apprentices. Why does Jesus need apprentices? He's the Messiah. He's incredibly powerful. Why does he need helpers? You've already heard that he's chosen to focus his ministry on a very unlikely region. But now you also hear that he chooses to build his kingdom through some very unlikely students, fishermen. These are not the kind of people you would expect a mighty king to appoint as his lieutenants. Even though, uh, sometimes contrary to the way they're portrayed, even though these fishermen were probably kind of in the middle class of the first century, you can see that they are running their own business, they own a boat, they're working with their dad. Uh, even though they were probably kind of in the middle class, even so, they are simple and uneducated tradesmen. First century rabbis normally would be approached by students who wanted to study with them. They would not go out looking for students. But in this case, Jesus goes for them. Jesus appoints them. There he is. He's walking along on the beach. He sees these guys fishing there, just going about their daily normal business. And Matthew wants to emphasize for us the power of Jesus' call upon them. In verse 19, Jesus simply says to them, follow me. And they do. When Jesus calls people to himself, they must respond in obedience, no matter what it costs them, no matter what risks it might bring. These first two men, these two brothers, Peter and Andrew, they immediately leave their nets. They immediately start following Jesus. What a strange work day. They don't even go home at the end of it. In verse 21, you hear that another pair of brothers leave not only their work, but also their possessions. They leave their boat. Matthew tells us that they even leave their family. He says they leave their father there. You know, too bad, Dad, you've got to finish up with all this fishing stuff. We're out of here. Jesus told us to go with him. Following Jesus uh, does not mean that you must totally renounce everything in this world, all of its stuff and all of its relationships. 
Most of Jesus' disciples back then and today don't leave their daily jobs. Uh, And pretty soon in Matthew, Jesus is going to teach about the importance of caring for your elderly parents, even if you have some super-duper spiritual excuses not to. But the point here is that Jesus must hold absolute priority over everything else, even your career, even your family. The point is that we have to sacrifice many things. Sometimes we have to sacrifice everything for the sake of Jesus' mission because of who Jesus is. He's God's king come into this world. He's the light of the world come to rescue us from the darkness of death. Now, it's true. There are some Christians who are too rigid, too demanding about leaving it all for Jesus. But in my experience, it's not the danger for most of us. It's not the danger for me. Most of us are far too attached to our possessions and our families. We find it all too easy to make excuses about why we don't really have to sacrifice our comfort and our future, why we shouldn't really have to say or do things that are going to upset our neighbors and our family members. Notice also that Jesus does not say, follow me and I will give you personal salvation, even though he does do this, and it's a wonderful thing that he does this. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You're not going to fish for fish anymore, you're going to fish for people. Jesus calls them to a mission. He calls them toward other people. He calls them to a work of transforming the world by calling other people into the life and the light of God's kingdom. There was and is a special role for people like the apostles or people today like pastors and elders. They do, we do have a special role in carrying out this work of Jesus' ministry. But ultimately, this mission of fishing for people is the work of all Christians. And so if you're here and you're a Christian this morning, Jesus has not called you merely to a personal experience or a private piety or a spiritual spectator sport. Jesus has called you to speak about him to other people. Jesus has called you to invite other people to come out of the darkness of death and into the light of Jesus' kingdom. It's going to look different for all of us, depending on where God has placed us, what he's calling us to. It's going to look different depending on our stages of life. For some of us, it's going to mainly look like teaching and evangelizing little kids, running around, changing their diapers for them. Uh, But all of us, wherever we're at, all of us are called to go out somehow. All of us are called to speak boldly, not just to keep it to ourselves. How might God be calling you this year, Christians, to grow in your mission of fishing for people. So the people of the kingdom, first we see Jesus calling the apostles, his original 12 disciples. They are called to this mission of fishing for people, a mission that all Christians at some level share in. But now look at verses 23 to 25, uh, where also we see under this heading of the people of the kingdom, we see the crowds. We've already said that Jesus went around teaching and preaching the kingdom. This is the first thing that Matthew tells us he's doing around Galilee. But you also see here that his teaching is backed up with these powerful miracles of delivering people from demonic oppression and healing them from physical and mental afflictions. And listen to this. Listen to how comprehensive this is. They brought to him all the sick 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralyzed people, and he healed them. The miracles of Jesus not only vindicate that what he's saying is true, they don't only prove that you should pay attention to what he's saying about who he is, Uh, they don't only uh, give you a a reason to not uh, ignore what he's saying, they do do that. They vindicate his message, but they also illustrate his message. They illustrate the nature of the kingdom. They give a tangible picture of what we mean when we say that God is restoring and rescuing a dark and deathly world through his kingdom rule. The miracles literally embody what Jesus means when he says that his kingdom is a kingdom of freedom and life and wholeness. He's showing you. He's doing it. He's bringing it about in the world. God can and still does do miracles like these today, but they are not happening in the same way, and we should not demand them or map them onto our preferred political policies, our expectations for what life should be like in this world, especially through what we might accomplish. But even so, qualifications aside, there is a real principle here. God's kingdom is profoundly concerned with deliverance from demons as well as the health of the body and the mind. None of this is going to fully arrive until Jesus comes back for the second time. But in the meantime, God's people, God's kingdom people, do proclaim the good news that Jesus has already rescued us from the slavery of sin and Satan and death. And we proclaim the good news that one day Jesus will heal us of all physical and spiritual suffering. And you illustrate that in the meantime through your lives and through your behavior, especially in the local church, through the way we treat each other, the way we care for each other. Uh, You guys just gave a bunch of money to a guy in Belize uh, who needed to fix his car because uh, otherwise he has to ride his bike around to a bunch of different churches to preach and the car works as the ambulance in the village. It's a picture of what's coming when Jesus comes back a second time. So we illustrate this through our own lives, through our own behavior, especially in the local church, but we also do it towards those outside the church, especially the poor. Jesus' mission is to bring men and women and boys and girls into his kingdom of life and light. And he does it, somewhat surprisingly, not just in a strange area, but through strange people. He does it through unlikely and unimpressive workers and students. The apostles, the crowds, so desperate, so needy, so many problems, all of them mobbing around Jesus. He does it through people like you and me. And he wants his kingdom to spread over all the world. He wants it to spread to all kinds of people, to all nations, to all ethnicities. And you already see that there at the end of verse 25. It says that everybody from the whole area, even the pagan areas, even the Syrians, They're coming to Jesus. They're coming to receive the life that only he can bring. God's kingdom is a kingdom for the whole world. If you're a Christian today, you have received that life already. If you're not a Christian, you can receive it today. If you're a Christian, God calls you to bring this life to other people in spite of your weaknesses, in spite of your fears, in spite of your insufficiencies. 
There's no greater enemy than death, and so there's no greater mission than Jesus's, the spread of his kingdom of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you that the kingdom has invaded this world of death. You didn't leave us in darkness. You didn't leave us on our own, totally helpless. You have burst in with the coming of Jesus. Help us not to take it for granted, this wonderful gift of light in the midst of darkness. Help us to see with new eyes uh, the needs of the people around us. Uh, Give us a deeper compassion for those who are Uh, stumbling around in the dark, whether it's spiritual or intellectual or physical or mental darkness. Lord, help us to love them. Help us to point to you. Help us to proclaim faithfully as a church this wonderfully good news that in Jesus, light is coming. For we pray in his name. Amen.